Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. There's two things that anybody God's put in your life can teach you. And all of them teach you both of these things. Here's the first thing you can learn from anyone. You can learn what you should be like. They're going to live an example. They're going to do something, say something, live a certain way that you say, wow, I admire that. I'd like to be like that. There's a second thing you can learn from people, and that's what not to be like. You can see or experience them do something that hurts you, hurts somebody else that's reckless. You can see them making life choices that are just spinning out of control. You can see them combine foods on their plate that turn your stomach and you say, I don't ever want to try that because I saw that on that person's plate, right? Everybody in your life can teach you one of two things. And if you're, this is a word for some, somebody today who maybe you're, You're trying to recover from an unhealthy relationship in your life. And you're thinking, why in the world would God allow somebody like that into my life? I may not be able to answer that to your satisfaction, but here's something I can tell you. You can probably learn some things you should never do to somebody else because of what you've experienced. That person's provided for you an example not to repeat. And you can learn from their mistakes and not repeat that in your own life. But here's the humbling reality. Most, all of us are doing the same thing for someone else. We are providing an example of things that you should be like. We're being exemplary. We're being good examples. Some, you know, you see this um, if you grew up with siblings or if you're a parent or a grandparent and you've got multiple, I, we, my family, my wife and I have two boys, a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old. And the 10-year-old, they're, they're good kids, they're boys, and they have their moments. And at some times, the 10-year-old is doing something really exemplary. He's using his best manners. He's saying, please and thank you. And, and the five-year-old is looking in, and he's, uh, he's like, okay, he said this to mom, and that created a good environment in the room. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow along that. I want mom to respond to me the way she does to my older brother. Then there's sometimes the 10-year-old has his moments, and the five-year-old studying that too and saying, hmm, I'm going to bank this and use this later. <laughs> well, well, Chase earlier today did this, and you said, we're a combination of those things. As a parent, I'm becoming hyper-aware of I have, I am all the time showing my boys things I want them to see and be like. I'm also, at times, and this isn't my plan, but it comes out, I'm also providing the other example. And I want you to be hyper-aware of that. Every relationship you have has the potential to show you an example to follow, an example not to follow, and you, more importantly, have... The the reality is you're showing somebody else who sees you. Whether you have a relationship with them or not, you have the opportunity to use the life that you live to be an example to follow or one not to follow. I want to be unbalanced in this. I hope that in my life I'm providing more of the example of Christ to follow than I am of the example of the flesh not to follow. One of the things I appreciate about the story we're going to read today is that Luke, who's writing Acts, he kind of pulls back the curtain to a really intense meeting with some of the heaviest hitters in Christianity. Every, pretty much every 
major Christian leader and influencer in the world in 57 AD was in this room. And it's a bunch of Christian leaders and pastors and elders gathering together. And I don't know if, if I'll ever have an opportunity in my life to be a fly on the wall in one of these modern-day meetings. I don't know that I'd want to be. You know, you put all the, put all the major television preachers in, one room, in a green room, you know, and then let me go in there and just listen to what they talk about. I don't know what that would be like. I don't think they'd have much to talk to me about. <laughs> but we get to see behind the curtain, and we find out a lot about how the Christian church in 57 AD, we find a lot about how the pastors thought about each other. We find out about what they got along about. We see how they treat one another in social situations. We find out how they handle rumors. And we see some things in this story that Echo Community Church and every Christian church should read that and say, I want the community that I'm involved, I want the church that I'm involved in to operate that way. Or we do that. That's been my experience. I want to protect that. That's really important. I love the fact that Luke also lets us in on some of the other stuff that's going on there. And you read it and you're like, oh, that doesn't sound like that was good at all. That was, that was toxic. That was harmful. That was hurtful. That, that got people upset with one another. I don't want to allow that to happen in the faith community that I'm involved with. And so I want us to read it that way. Just to catch you up, we've been studying through Acts Acts, among other things, it tells us the story of how Christians got here. It gives us the story of the very first Christians in history. And the book is primarily history told in the form of a story, and it also has geography attached to it. Luke tells the story of how the true account of who Jesus was, what he did, and why it mattered traveled from the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1, all the way through to the final chapter, that story makes its way to Rome. And along the way, we connect all the dots of how the news got from point A to point B. And in this part of Acts, we've been studying Paul and how God used him. Now, he's not the only person God used. We saw that last week. There was a lot of other things going on that Luke didn't record. But he focuses in on Paul's journey. He has, at this point in the journey, completed his third missionary tour, and he's focused primarily on Mediterranean Europe, that part of the Roman Empire. And he's been traveling from town to town, city to city, urban center to urban center, teaching about Jesus, seeing people get saved, planting churches, and then usually getting run out of town when he turned unpopular. About the end of his third missionary journey, we read that he had a feeling in his heart that change was coming. And he writes in Acts chapter 19 that after I'm done here, I must get to Jerusalem and then go on to Rome. And he starts sharing this with the churches along the way. And he starts getting boat tickets to make his way back to Jerusalem. And along the way where he has layovers, he usually in that town goes, finds the church that's there, the Christians that's there, and stays in there like VRBOs with no fee. He stays with the Christians there. They take care of him. They feed him. And along the way, he starts sharing his sense that the Holy Spirit's giving him, that not only is it to go to Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit's been giving him ideas about what it's going to be like there. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit has, has tipped me off and is preparing me in advance. It's going to be, there's danger awaiting for me in Jerusalem. And I don't know exactly what it looks like other than danger in prison. And he's sharing this with people. And as they're hearing it, these Christians are saying, Paul, this is not a good idea. Don't go. And yet, 
he keeps, he, he weighs it seriously, but he keeps going. Last week, we read about how the closer that he got to Jerusalem, there was some more pretty dramatic confirmation that came his way that what he was hearing about the Holy Spirit was accurate. You remember last week, we talked about the, the prophet named Agabus who traveled from Judea over to Caesarea where Paul was, was staying, and Agabus heard from the Lord a confirming word. Agabus, God had told Agabus through the Holy Spirit that Paul was going to uh, be handcuffed and put in prison and have danger if he went to Jerusalem and when he got to Jerusalem. So Agabus gets there and he has this, do you remember the dramatic, like kind of like the overdramatic way that Agabus acted this out? Do you remember that from last week? What did Agabus do? He, he takes Paul's belt off, which like I've said before, like, look, that's just weird. Like we don't, in our culture, we don't do that. A dude doesn't go up to another dude and take off his belt and say, hey, watch what I can do. Like, we don't do that, okay? But Agabus does this. He could have just said, you know, Paul, I've been praying, and here's what the Holy Spirit has to say to you. Rather than doing that, he decides another way. He, he takes Paul's belt, and while everybody watches, he ties up his hands and feet, and he says, whoever owns this belt, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. The whole room's like, dude, we know whose belt that that is. It's Paul's belt, couldn't you? But he was just, Old Testament prophets did some of the same things. Rather than just telling, they acted out the prophecy. So he was probably in that line. Paul hears all this, and yet you know what he does? He says, look, if God is sending me to Jerusalem and he's telling me that I'm going to go to jail, then I'll go to jail for God. If it means death, I'm ready to die. All I know is not the Holy Spirit's not preventing me from going by telling me what's coming. He's preparing me for going by telling me what's coming. And so I know we've been leading up to this. This week, he finally gets to Jerusalem. They go up to Jerusalem. And and you'll read that phrase. Some of your translations will say he goes up. That's because people back then thought about Jerusalem topographically, not geographically. Do you know the difference? What does topographic map, what does a topographic map show you? Elevation. And Jerusalem sat highly elevated above everything else. It was up on top of a plateau. And so if you went No matter which direction you came from, the last part was you went up. So they go up to Jerusalem. Let's read together, and we're going to see this behind-the-curtain meeting. And I want you to already start to say, hmm, I want to be part of a community of faith that does this. And you're also going to see some things in there like, this was going on. I don't want that to go on in my faith community. That would not be attractive. That would not be helpful. Let's read. um, Let me read it to you. I'll read the whole passage. Then we'll go back through and just make sure you understand some of the details, and then we'll apply it, and then I'll send you to your cookouts. Because once again, I'm the last thing before you go eat, and you change the way you look at me as every minute goes by. And so I I recognize where we're at to also let me address something. My 10-year-old, I hadn't seen him before I left the house today, and uh, he's back in E-Kids, and I go back there in between the services, and I pray over all the workers. We have a great day back there with the kids, and I walk in the room, and my son goes, Dad, 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 come here. What in the world? I said, what do you mean, what in the world? He's like, your pants. I said, wait a minute. He's like, he's like they're, uh, they're interesting. I said, well, what interests you about them, son? He says, well, you know, they just kind of pop. And I said, well, do you like it better when I dress popped or unpopped? He said, Dad, please unpopped. Please unpopped from now on. And I'm just like, well, thanks, buddy. I said, but I, I don't care. They're paid for. They fit, and they were clean. So, and it's Independence Day, so stay awake. There you go. Enjoy them. And all their, what did you call them, John? Smoked coral? Yeah, they're not pink. They're smoked coral. Okay, whatever that means. All right, so we'll address it, and then we'll move on. All right, I mean, just for those of you who think I only own vests, just write this down. 
you know, and if you've been here two Easter's ago, you've seen these already, okay? So they're, they're just not in regular rotation, but it's a holiday, so you're welcome. You're welcome. I love you. I don't care what you think. They fit. They're clean. Here we go. All right. After we packed our things, we, oh, we, so there's other people traveling along. Keep this in mind. It's Luke. So Paul's traveling with an entourage. He's got the original three amigos, right? Luke, Silas, and I forgot, uh, Timothy. They're with him. Then there's this other group of pastors from the Mediterranean churches, uh, 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 Sipater, Aristarchus, and Secundus. Do you remember those two dudes from a couple weeks ago? Aristarchus means the aristocrat. Secundus meant the second slave, which is really cool because here in God's community, aristocrats and slaves now said, we're no longer two different classes, we're brothers, which is awesome. They're together. Trophimus and Tychicus, uh, all these other guys with great names that you've never named your children, they're all traveling along in this group. Then, uh, so just, here's what I want you to see. This is not a mono-ethnic traveling entourage. There are Jews, there are Messianic Jews, there are Gentiles, there are Romans, there are Greeks. There are all different ethnic backgrounds represented in Paul's traveling entourage that's now going to roll into Jerusalem together. This is not a normal sight in Jerusalem. Okay? Some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home of Manasin, a man, I love saying that name, uh, a man originally from Cyprus and one of the early believers. When we arrived, I love this verse, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. I love that. Because we're going to find out there was some major disagreements that they had. And yet, there was something more important that held their relationship together. Here are people who did not agree on everything, and yet they could have warm, sincere, genuine fellowship with each other because the most important unifying factor in their life was their family relationship through Jesus. And they said, that's more, that's more important to me than how you vote or how you decorate or what your fashion is or what teams you root for. I can, we can disagree on some of these things and we can still enjoy being in relationship with each other through Jesus. That's very uncommon. And it's supposed to be something unique about God's family. Verse 18. The next day, Paul went with us. Okay, so there's about to be a big meeting, a sit down. And it's Paul... Timothy, Silas, I always forget one. Silas, Timothy, Luke. All the Gentile pastors from the, and, and, and the Greek pastors from Corinth and Berea and all those other churches, and Nason, and the believers from Caesarea. So Paul's traveling itinerant group, they're going to go to this meeting. They go to meet with James, who is at this point probably the head of, of the Christian church in Jerusalem, the head of the council, probably, probably the equivalent of the general superintendent of Christianity at this point in history. Now, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, not to be confused with James, the brother of John. Why do we think that? Well, James, the brother of John, was executed earlier on in Acts. This is another James. We believe James, the half-brother of Jesus. They shared Mary as a mom. Jesus' is, Jesus is biological dad was God the Father through the Holy Spirit. His earthly dad who raised him here was Joseph, and so they came up in the same family. James did not buy into who Jesus was during his life. This was his brother. 
But after his resurrection and ascension, James finds salvation through Jesus, and now his brother is his Lord. Don't you think if there was a human being on the face of the earth who knew that Jesus had this hidden story about who he really was, it would have been this dude? And yet here's a guy who knew what Jesus was like with the neighbor kids. He knew how Jesus behaved, and he saw no sin in his own brother. And when he writes his letter later on, he doesn't talk about Jesus, my, little, my big bro. He talks about Jesus, my Lord and Savior, who he is his servant. That's a radical heart change. Anyway, not in the notes, but it's just a beautiful part of the story. All the elders of Jerusalem church are present. So this is a big time sit down. The who's who, all the heavy hitters in Christianity at, we believe is about 57 AD. So 25 years after Acts chapter 1. We've covered two and a half decades from Acts chapter 1 to this meeting. After greeting them, they give Paul the floor. He gives a detailed account of all the things God had had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. Little Greek lesson here. The phrase gave a detailed account is the Greek equivalent of saying an unabridged, exhaustive, detailed report. In other words, Paul preached another long sermon. Remember what happened last time he preached a really long sermon? Dude fell out the window like he was dead, Paul went down and said he's not dead. He got back up. They had a meal. He finished the sermon. Crazy story, but it's in the Bible. We had to talk about it. Paul is doing the equivalent of sitting in a room with men who probably hadn't traveled outside their city much. He's saying, let me tell you about what God has been doing in every single town that I've been to for the last 12 years. He's telling story after story after story. We've read the stories, crazy things, earthquakes, sweaty sweatbands being laid on dead people and then coming back to life, demons being driven out, radical salvations, churches planted, thousands of people coming to Jesus. And I don't want to read too much into the text, but you have to understand, think about it this way. Two pastors who are collegial, both are leading Very significant ministries. One is a pastor of a local church who served his town for 25 years and is seeing a lot of the people from that town come to Jesus. Another pastor has never stayed in a town more than three years. He's been traveling for 12 years all over the world, preaching in crusades and seeing all kinds of people outside of that Jerusalem environment. He's seeing all these people coming to Christ. One, one person is traveling and being bold and great. The other one is staying put in one city. And this guy is talking about, here's how I'm doing, and here's what the results are. Human beings sometimes have this little thing that goes up in our heart when we hear someone else in our same field having really good results. There's a little bit of competition sometimes. You hear about somebody else who's in your same business but works for a different company. And they're saying, man, things are really good. We've had a really good quarter and this and that. We've hired this many people. We're expanding in this territory. And you're sitting there, well, we have, I want to tell you about what we're doing over here. You know, and there's a part of you that you're, I'm not 100% sure. But when I read through this, and there's a, there's a reason why I feel this way, I think a small part of how the Jerusalem council is here, they have a nuanced reaction. There's some things they're hearing that they're really going to get on board with. And then there's some other things that they feel like, well, we we appreciate the way you're doing it, Paul, but we do things a little differently here, and let's prove to you why our way also works. Okay. After greeting them, he gave a detailed account. Verse 20. After hearing this, they. Now, let me tell you who the they is. The they is, 
I know sometimes they put subtitles up on YouTube. The they is, they I like to see YouTube translate that one. Um, the, the they group is James, the Jerusalem elders and the believers who are local to Jerusalem. They hear this report. Now, I want the language here is very interesting. They praised God and then they said, do you hear that? They praised God and then, <laughs> they praised God and then, you, you hear that? Almost like they're saying, son, I am so, you brought home an awesome report card that you got all A's. I'm so excited you brought all those grades up. That's awesome. Great job. We need to talk about your room though. They praised God and then. There's an and then here. In other words, there's something this group has on their mind to talk to Paul about that's not praiseworthy in their hearts. You know, dear brother, they say, call him dear brother. I'm reading sarcasm into this. I don't know that there's sarcasm there. That's the problem. I Sarcasm was just the normal way of talk when I lived in Pennsylvania and Maryland. Then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and spent 10 years there, and I found out that in the South, they do not understand sarcasm. They think you're being mean. People would constantly ask my wife, is he being serious? She's like, no, he's being sarcastic. Well, what's that? And she's like, Phil, you've got to ease up. People don't know when you're... I'm like, okay, so I totally rid myself of sarcasm over a decade. Then we moved back here. And I'm like... I forgot how sarcastic we really were. I'd be going home like, is that person serious? I'm like, no, this is, how we, this is how we show you that we love you, by just saying mean things about you that we don't really mean. <laughs> what? Well, that mean thing I really meant, but this mean thing was it, like, what, what, this is a weird country, right? This is just a weird, we, we express appreciation and honor in very backwards ways sometimes, <laughs> Hearing this, they praised God and said, you know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed? Paul was talking about Gentiles getting saved. They're saying, you need to know that there are thousands of Jews who have also believed. In other words, our ministry here in this city is also effective. It's valid. Thousands of Jews are getting saved, and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. We're like, uh-oh, these, that's unusual. Why are we bringing that up now? Let's keep reading. But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told. Anytime someone starts off a conversation with you by saying, well, I've been told that you need to pump the brakes. Well, well, I heard, oh, uh, from who? Well, I, you know, just they, they're, they're saying, who? Who's the they? What's your source? But we don't because we want to hear what's coming next. And usually what's coming next is not 100% accurate. The Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching all the Jews who are living among the Gentiles outside of Jerusalem in Europe. They've heard you're teaching all the Jews living in these other countries to turn their backs on the law of Moses. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. Now, what are, now here we are, the council. What are we supposed to do? They'll certainly hear that you've come. Now, let me pause here to show you what's going on here. The Jewish leaders are confronting Paul with the reality that his reputation among the Christians in Jerusalem is horrible. 
Now, he's not always had a good reputation in that city to begin with. But they're saying the believers here, the Jewish believers here, think pretty negatively of you because they've heard some stuff about you. I wonder, is it possible that you think negatively about someone that you don't even know personally, but you just think negatively about them based on what you've heard? Unfortunately, yeah. And we say, oh, that's horrible. People shouldn't be like that. We're those people. And we run into trouble when we pass judgment without an investigation. You don't want that to happen to you. Heaven forbid you should ever have to go to trial. You don't want the judge to make a judgment without talking to the witnesses and trying to ferret out the facts. And that's exactly what's going on in this church. There are people in Jerusalem who are hearing, and they even say, rumors about Paul. And they're assuming those rumors are true. And they're angry, and they are stirred up, and they're triggered, and they're ready to act violently, and in fact, they will. And they've never even fact-checked those rumors to see if they're true. Well, pastor, I would never be, see, I would never be part of that. That's the problem with spreading rumors. No one will ever admit to spreading one or hearing one or passing it along. We all have ways of sanitizing it. But I want to tell you, we are not morally incapable of doing the very same thing in our own faith community. So we need to watch what happens here. Here's what they're confronting Paul with. They're saying the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem, we would call them Messianic Jews, They've come to faith in Jesus. They're legitimately saved. They're headed to heaven. They have been saved by grace through faith, and they've chosen based on that to repent and believe. They're gloriously saved. And simultaneously, they are also remaining devoted to the Old Testament law, which involves Sabbath customs, dietary customs, and sacrificial customs. They're doing both. That's very important to them. And now they're hearing that Paul, this renegade, is traveling all through Europe and people are getting saved. And and the Gentiles, that's one thing. We don't expect the Gentiles to become Jewish. We hammered that out early in the book of Acts. But the problem is there's some Jews that have left Jerusalem and they're living in all these other countries where Paul's going. And we're hearing that Paul is teaching those Jews after they get saved to become anti-Jewish. They're hearing Paul's an anti-Semite. They're hearing that Paul, when it comes to the issue of whether or not Messianic Jews, Jews who get saved, when it comes to the issue of circumcision, Paul's not just saying you should do it. He's not saying it's up to you. They're hearing Paul saying, I forbid circumcision. I forbid the dietary laws. I forbid the Sabbath laws. Turn your back on Moses. And they're saying, we're hearing this is what Paul is teaching. He's going around teaching anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic sermons to Jews and telling them to, to empty themselves of all their Jewish tradition in order to be a Christian. Now, here's my question for you. You've read through this with me. Is that what Paul is teaching? Of course not. Now, to be fair, the Jerusalem church did not yet have access to a letter Paul would write to the Romans or to a letter he'd write to the Galatians or even to the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews. Those books go into great detail about how Salvation through Jesus impacts the emphasis that we put on the Old Testament law. And I, 
even me saying that, I realize you're probably thinking, Pastor, please don't pretend that we're in a Bible college right now and that you're teaching us. I don't want to get too, I don't want to get lost in the sauce. Here's what I want to summarize. Here's, I think, the summary of what Paul has taught so far very clearly. The laws of Moses, once you're saved, or actually, because of what Jesus did on the cross, the laws of Moses are no longer required. They're no longer necessary because Jesus fulfilled the entire law. Therefore, you're not bound to that law anymore. However, he also does not say, he doesn't say it's destructive. In other words, he says it's no longer necessary to be right with God. It's no longer required to be right with God. Neither is it destructive if you choose to still practice some of those customs as an act of worship to the Lord. Here's what he's saying. You want to worship on Saturdays? Because that's the Sabbath, worship on Saturdays. Feel free to do so. But don't think it makes you any more spiritual than the person who worships on Wednesday or Sunday. You want to worship on Sundays now? Awesome, but don't look down at people who worship on Saturday. We're free from that. Paul said it this way. He says, I'm thankful that I'm no longer under the control of the law anymore, but to those who are under the law, I became as under the law in order that I might win some. He says, you no longer have to practice circumcision in order to be accepted by God. But if you want to practice circumcision, you are blessed and welcome to do so. Just don't think it makes you more spiritual than somebody who doesn't. That's what Paul really taught. Do you think Paul was was aware of the content of his preaching? Yes, he was there. He knew what he was about. He knew who he was. He knew who he wasn't. And here's the scenario. The Jerusalem council is saying, we've heard some rumors about you and the people around here are upset. And if they see you, they're going to want to hurt you. And you've only been here for 24, maybe 36 hours at this point, but word is going to get out that you're here. And what are we, the council, going to do about it? They will certainly hear that you've come. They don't give, they ask a question. They don't give them a chance to answer. They say, what do you think we should do? Then verse 24 Here's their answer, which makes me cringe, verse 23. Here's what we want you to do. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? What do you think we should do? Well, let me tell you what you should do. They don't even give you a chance to weigh in. Here's what we want you to do. So the Jerusalem council is going to give a scenario to Paul, and they're going to say, here's what you need to do because we say so. I think there's a little bit of a power play still going on here. Paul, you have an effective ministry. We celebrate it. We're united in this. But at the end of the day, we're still the Jerusalem Council. We're still the general superintendent. We are the denominational heads. There's a situation going on here. The people here don't like you. They've heard some things about you. We want to give you a chance to clear the air. So here's, we have four men here who have completed their vow, most likely a Nazarite vow, a 30-day purification ritual among the Jews that involved you abstaining from certain foods and from uh, grape-laden beverages, growing out all of your hair for 30 days minimum. And then at the end of that vow, you would do several things. You would shave all of your hair. I I do a Nazarite vow every morning. You shave all of your hair, and then you would bring that hair, which kind of gross, to the temple, and you would make an offering to symbolize the end of the purification vow. You would bring a lamb, a ram, some cakes with oil in them, and your shaved hair. So the lamb was a um, sin offering. The ram was a peace offering. The cakes with oil in them were another offering. And then you'd bring your hair, and you would offer it to the Lord, and they would burn it all together. And again, I'm like, the smell of burnt hair and lamb in the temple. I don't know how that 
here, here you go, Lord, bless you for that. I don't know what that looked like, but that's what they did. Okay. Question, is Paul opposed to Nazarite vows? You, those of you who have been with us, don't you remember one of those Sundays where he, Luke records this detail that says before Paul left the mission field and went up to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, he stopped and had his head shaved to end a vow. This guy is still at times deciding this has been an important part of my faith journey and I want to voluntarily take 30 days and focus on God purifying me. Not because I feel like I have to do it as a condition of salvation, but because I want to as a way to draw closer to the Lord. So he practiced this stuff already. He says, I want you, we have four men here who are finishing up their vow. Go with them to the temple. Number two, join them in the ceremony of purification. Number three, pay for them to have the barber ritually cut their hair. Then everyone will know that the, you see what word they use? That the rumors are all false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. Isn't this interesting? They're saying, Paul, we're hearing some rumors about you and everybody's pretty upset. Here's what you need to do about it. And that doesn't seem fair, does it? Did Paul start these rumors? Are they true? Does Paul know what he's taught? Yes. Does Paul, and they're saying, here's some hoops you need to jump through, Paul, if you want everybody here to not be angry at you. You need to join these guys in the ritual. You need to complete it with them. You need to sponsor them. You need to pay their bill. Then everybody will here will see, you know what? Paul's not an anti-Semite. He wouldn't wouldn't participate in these rituals if he wasn't an anti-Semite. And so by Paul not only participating but paying everybody else's ways, he is public. It's a photo op. He's publicly endorsing these things. Then everybody will know that the rumors are false. They're They're essentially saying, Paul, you didn't start these rumors. You didn't spread these rumors. But it's on you to dispel them. And here's the way we're telling you you have to do it. Now, does Paul have to do this? No. In fact, if Phil Nauer was there, I'd be like, first of all, what are your sources? Let's see, who are you hearing this from? Why don't we bring them in the room? Who's the they? Well, the TM, the Jerusalem TMZ was out there. No, 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 no. Who are the, I want to know. Was it Leroy down on the dock? Was it, was it Sam over here? From the, was it Teresa down at the, bring them in here. And if your name's Leroy, Sam, or Teresa, this is nothing personal. Bring them in here. Let's find out where they heard it from. I mean, if they had technology, it could be like, listen, I'm on podcasts. I'm on Twitter. You can go look and see what I'm about. Paul knew what he was about. Who else is in the room with Paul while this is all going on? All these pastors from overseas who have taken up a collection to bring to Jerusalem, they're probably in there like their eyes this big, like, uh-oh. <laughs> like Things are going a little sideways here. Paul is under no obligation to do any of this. So how does he respond? (laughs) Let's read. Um, Oh, I love that they add this here. I don't want to be too hard on the Jerusalem council here. Because I don't know that there's anything necessarily sinful going on in that room. It's just a a different approach than maybe what I would hope to see. 
they recognize that in the room are non-Jewish believers. And they could be hearing this and thinking, uh-oh, what's in front? If these people are, are, are not going to accept the fact that believers don't still follow the law of Moses, that's going to mean a lot more for me than it does for them. And they're saying, as for Gentile believers, this has nothing to do with them. This is intra-Jewish business. The Gentile believers, we've already talked about this. Way back earlier on in Acts, don't you remember at first the Jerusalem church and the hardcore Jews, were, especially Peter, were probably not really excited about seeing Gentiles come to the Lord. And we'll talk about this next week, but there's some ancient Jewish writing that indicates that in the early Jewish in the early Jewish communities, there was a teaching among some of the more radical rabbis that the only reason God created Gentiles was to keep the fires of hell hot. They were kindling and tinder for that. That's how low they thought of Gentiles. But God did a miraculous deep work of racial reconciliation being in the hearts of, of the Jews and the Gentiles. And earlier on in the book of the Acts, it took them a little while, but the Jerusalem Council eventually got on board and said, we are on board. We obviously can see that it is God's great pleasure that salvation is not only for us, but for the Gentiles. Let's continue to do ministry with the Gentiles with no conditions except the following conditions. Have you ever, listen, I have no expectations for my birthday, just the following things. Then you have expectations for your birthday, right? As for the Gentile believers, we've already written a letter and clarified our position on them. They should, they should abstain from eating food offered to idols, consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. That was already a letter earlier on. In other words, they're saying this whole hoop jumping through thing, Paul, this is, not, this is not a statement about Gentile believers. This is specifically about Jewish believers and our insistence that you unify your message with ours, that it is not evil for Jews who get saved to continue in the laws of Moses. Now, Paul is not willing to say that you're bound to the laws of Moses, nor is Paul willing to say that Gentiles have to adopt the law of Moses. His position has been, you can do them or not do them as an act of your own conscience, so long as it is out, that you're motivated out of worship for God and not out of a sense of superiority or obligation. So what does he do? I'll just read the first sentence of verse 26 because I want to save the fireworks for next week. You'll get enough fireworks today and tomorrow, but I'll save. It really escalates. Verse 26, so Paul went to the temple the next day with the other men. He does it. He goes. They had already started the purification ritual, so he publicly announced the date when their vows would end and sacrifices would be offered for each of them. Paul, bold, courageous, stick to his guns. Paul says, okay. I'll do it. Why? Why would he do that? Aren't you relieved that he tells us? Let me see if I can find it. First uh, uh, Corinthians 9, verse 19, he explains why he agreed to this. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. In other words, even though I, through Jesus, am no longer bound to maintaining the Old Testament Mosaic law to be right with God, I've been free from that. I am willing to make myself a slave not to the law but to all men in order to bring many to Christ. Verse 20, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew so I could bring Jews to Christ. 
When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ, but I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. That's a nuanced view, but you understand what he's saying. He's not talking about changing what is righteous and holy. He's not saying, well, when I'm with the alcoholics, I drink really heavily so that I can get into the world. Some of us think that way. That's not what he's saying at all. That's not Jesus's model. Well, Jesus hung out with the sinners and publicans. He wasn't soliciting prostitutes and getting hammered. He related to them. He talked to them. He listened to them, but he didn't participate in sinful activity. He lived a holy, righteous, compassionate, welcoming life in front of them, and that was irresistible to them. And that drew them in, and he set them free, not by saying, hey, go home and get hammered. You're forgiven, now depart your way and sin no more. Here's what Paul's saying. I recognize in different groups of people, I have to have different social sensibilities about me so that I don't unintentionally unintentionally take a minor thing and make it a major obstacle. I don't know if you get that. We'll leave that for another day. I need, to, I need to travel on. So here's this crazy scene. Paul finally gets to Jerusalem. He knows danger lies ahead. He arrives with his entourage. They know danger lies ahead, and they don't know when it's going to happen. First day, warm greetings from the brothers and sisters. Second day, warm greetings at the meeting, and they invite Paul to teach, give a report. He goes into endless detail about 12 years of amazing ministry among the Gentiles, and that warms the hearts of the council. And after their heart is warmed and they praise God, they get down to their agenda. And it is, Paul, there's, an, there's some, your reputation around here is not good. We've heard some things, and we've latched on to that. And the people around here, they're pretty passionate and triggered. There's certain things you can joke about here in Jerusalem, in the church, but those things, those are fighting words, Paul. And we hear that you've changed your tune, that you're going around telling all the Jews outside of Jerusalem that when they get saved, to turn their back on Judaism, turn their back on the law of Moses, to stop eating our way, dieting our way. You're saying that it's wrong and evil before the Lord. You've created, those rumors have run all over the city, and when the people find out, like here, it's not going to be good for you. So Paul, we're going to give you an opportunity to clear your name. Here's the hoops we've set up for you to jump through. Because if you do this, you'll silence your critics. You will quell the disagreement. And Paul says, okay, I'll do that. And we read later, it was not an admission of his failure. It was not a capitulation on his doctrine. He was simply so eager to put truth on the table and silence those things so they could have unity together. He was willing to go the second mile, even though he didn't have to. He was willing to go the second mile if it meant that he could get the offense out of the way and lead more Jews to Jesus. He was willing to do that. So in this scene, we see how the early Christian leaders acted in private meetings. We also see how the early Christian I don't want to say rival churches, but you had a big church in Jerusalem, and now you had lots of other churches all over Europe. You see where they were united, but you see also maybe where there could have been some competition or disagreement about how they were practicing Christianity. 
and how one group thought that their way was the only way and the right way and a dividing issue and other groups who were more uh, you know, multicultural, multi-ethnic churches didn't practice things that way and it could have frayed things. So we look into this and I see some things here. I see some things here that uh, I want our church to be like. I see some things here that our church is, that Echo is, and that I hope every Christian church is. I also see some warnings in here to say, like, I don't want that ever to be a root that grows up in my faith community. That would undermine everything. I run into people all the time who have what I call church hurt. Do you know what that means? Yeah. Their experience with the church caused more pain than good in their life. With an individual, with a family, with a pastor, with a leader, with a culture, with something that was said, with something that wasn't said, something that was done or forgotten, something that was looked at or overlooked. I would like to think that in my 25, 24 years of being a full-time pastor that no one's ever left from my ministry with church hurt. That's just not the case. I don't want to intentionally, and we don't want to intentionally cause hurt for others. But that means we have to be very humble and self-aware and spirit-aware of things that we could be doing, things that could happen, conditions that could persist, that could exist, that could hurt other people. So let me give a positive application to this text today. Here are, I'll just give them to you really quickly, because we've talked about most of them. This is essentially a summary of what we just talked about. Here's five characteristics I see in this chapter of what I think Luke is showing us makes up a healthy church. What do you mean by church? Your your faith community, the group of people that you are growing together spiritually with by regularly gathering with them to pray together, study together, worship together, and enjoy each other. I want you to know that's not optional. If you read through the New Testament, that's never optional. In fact, it's one of the ingredients of being a disciple that's never stripped away. God doesn't intend your Christian life to be lived to its fullest potential by living in complete relational isolation from other people. And I don't mean to suggest that every one of us has to have 100 best friends. But what it means is that, Paul writes about this clearly in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, you were created by God to be part of a body, not the whole body, but part of it. And when you are not part of a body, that body is missing out because you're not there. And you're also missing out because you need the rest of that body to live a fully fulfilled life. And so what we are trying to do at Echo and in every Christian church, we're trying to do this. We're trying to become an image of the family we will ultimately be in heaven. We're trying through the Holy Spirit to become The truest definition of family. We're trying to be a little microcosm, a little appetizer for what heaven is supposed to be like. That's what our mission is. And a lot of that is lived out by what we believe, but it's how we relate to each other. It's how we treat other people. It's how we bear each other's burdens. It's how we encourage each other. It's how we deal with difficulties. It's how we deal with rumors. It's how we, it's how we squash issues. It's how we deal with when we've offended people, when they've offended us. It's how we listen and care for other people, regardless of where they came from, what language they speak. 
those are not, we don't ignore those things, but those are not the main ingredients that bond us to people. We're bonded together by the love we have for our dad, and that puts us in a new family. Here are some healthy characteristics. And I wonder if you skipped over this phrase a bunch of times. One of the things I love about this story is we learn that in a healthy Christian community, we greet each other warmly. We greet each other warmly. And appropriately, nobody said anything when I said that because this is Baltimore, right? Greeting each other warmly means different things in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. Moise says, how do people greet each other in the Dominican church? Oh, he's, he's modeling it. He's, he just went up to uh, a person sitting two rows behind him and gave him a big hug. Some of you, if that was normal here, would never come back to Echo ever again. <laughs> You're not huggers. That's okay. But you understand if, if I go to the Dominican Republic and I go to a church there and I minister there and I won't hug anybody, how does that come off, Moses? Rude. In Atlanta, in Georgia, when you go to church, it's, it's all of that. It is. There were guys that every week kissed me on the cheek. I, I, it was just not normal for me growing up, right? Warm means different things, different places. But I'm telling you, if your community greets each other at 57 degrees on a normal day, the church ought to be at 75. Do you hear what I'm telling you? Okay, pastor, well, give us the 10 different ways that we can motivate ourselves to greet each other warmly. No. You know what I experienced at Echo? I have never done a sermon on here's, guys, we're not friendly enough. Here's the 17 ways to be more friendly. If we're teaching that lesson, there's a problem. Jerry Seinfeld said, I was invited to, to teach a master's class on stand-up comedy. And he said, who attends those classes? If you have to be taught how to be funny, you're not funny. <laughs> well, pastor, I'm not naturally friendly. I've got a solution for you. I don't care whether you are or you aren't. Jesus is. And where is he living if you're a believer? He lives in you. And he will warm you to people. I'm going to go to a cookout later today with my family. Uh, my wife and sons and I will drive up to York, Pennsylvania, to my sister's house. My sister will be there with her kids. My brother will be there with his kids. My parents will be there. Aunts and uncles will be there. My grandparents on my mom's side will be there. You do not have to give me 17 steps of how to walk into that environment and greet people. You know why? There's a warmness in my heart for my family that I don't have to be taught. It's just there. I don't need someone to say, you know, Phil, you really should go over and say hi to you. And sometimes we need moral cues. I'm going to greet everybody in my family because I want to. And I'm going to greet them a little bit differently than I do greet the young lady at 7-Eleven who I see every morning of the week. Now, I greet her. She's a little bit different than them. She picks on me and is sarcastic and everything. I'm not going to greet her the same way I greet my grandma. Not because she's less than. It's just a different relationship. There's a different internal, organic, natural warmth that bubbles up in your heart towards the family you love. I don't think anybody had to teach you how to respond to that in this faith community. You just experience it. If you walk around our family here, Baltimore is not, had, we do not have a national reputation for being, hmm. I'm trying to be careful here because I love my community. I chose to be here. Um, yeah, we're not, we don't have a natural reputation for warmth, hun. We don't have that. Yeah. 
have people have said hun to me many times who I don't think meant it in terms of endearment, but it was just there. We don't. But doesn't but isn't it lovely though to be in a community that is warm towards you, that cares and acknowledges when you come through the door? That whether they're 30 years your senior or 30 years your junior, they're interested in you. I love that when I was sitting here before the 9 a.m. service, I was surprised. I felt this little person come running up and, you know, she is a, this little girl, she, she's a hugger, Moy says. She's an aggressive hugger. I didn't see her coming and whoop, up over my arms, and you got to be careful because, you know, my self-defense training, you got to be careful around me. I can't be held responsible if my lightning quick reflexes do some stuff. But no, she jumped her arm around me. And, so, you know, in some churches, I went up, oh, no, no, that's the pastor. No, she's like, yeah, it's my pastor. Gives me a big bear hug, and she gave me a little paper bag that's crumpled up on the seat over there. It was Ivana, and, she's, and she had a little bag that said, Ivana's first fruits for Pastor Phil. And I opened it up, and it was two peppers and a cucumber. She started gardening this year and wanted to bring her first fruits to Pastor Phil. And so I had a neat little conversation. I was like, do you know what first fruits really means? No, and so we talked about that. She thought that was pretty cool. So she's like, so you're like a Levite priest? I said, no. (laughs) Isn't it? But I tell you that story, and you laugh, and you think it's cute. Do you understand that there are other places in society, if they heard about a little girl hugging a grown man, we feel danger, 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 right? There's just a warmth that is here. And I've heard over and over again from people from this county who say, and, some, and I've heard it from people who, who you might not even look at and say, like, I, are you a warm person or not? They'll just say, I just appreciate how warm this church is, how friendly people are, how welcoming they can be. Now, here's the thing. If you have a reputation for that, and we talk that up, and you're sitting in the room and you've not experienced that, there's probably a problem. You're thinking, then what is wrong with me that I've not experienced that? So we all have a role and greeting each other warmly. What do you mean warmly? Sincere, authentic, look people in the eye and say hello, good morning, good to see you. Right? All through these stories, town after town after town, that was a common thread of these churches. They greeted each other warmly. I spent way too much time on the first service and this service on that one. Moving on. Number two. I'll move faster. You know what? They reacted with genuine joy when they heard reports of people being saved. That was the number one thing that unified them. They didn't agree on strategy. They didn't agree on church methodology. They didn't agree on all of their theology. But you know what, they, what really lit their fire was when they heard of people being saved. It says when Paul told them about all the Gentiles being saved, they praised God. Can I tell you, I hope that's the thing that we as a church always, it, it animates us the most. It, enth- it makes us the most enthused, even more so than saying, well, hey, we broke this attendance record or that record. At the end of the day, I just don't think that stuff matters as much as we think that it does. I'm saying that as a pastor. Trust me, there's two things that among my colleagues I get evaluated on. They might, they, my colleagues aren't going to listen to how I preach. They're not going to ask about my theology. Most of them are going to consider how successful my ministry is by how big our church building is and how many people attend it. I would like to tell you I'm superhuman enough not to allow those things to impact my own identity. I'm not. But I have come to a place where I recognize that is not the way Jesus will evaluate my life when I stand before him. Because you can grow big or you can go deep. And I want to do both. 
But at the end of the day, I don't want to sacrifice depth for growing big. They got most excited when they heard about people being saved. I was at a picnic yesterday. One of the, pers- one of the young men that was attending the picnic attends this church. And uh, has attended this church for less than a year and a half. Actually, less than a year. September will be a year. The young man said, man, a couple weeks ago, you mentioned 96 people have been saved at Echo in the last 12 months. He's like, that's just amazing. And he just was so excited to be part of that. And it wasn't just like, Pastor, we just we love attending this church because, uh, you know, we love sleeveless vests and you wear them all the time. And your fashion is just, you're a cool pastor. And because I'm not, I know that. And I'm okay with that. I dress on a normal person's budget, right? He said the thing that lights him up is being part of a church where people are being saved. My presbyter asked me the other day, you know, what, you know, what can we be praying with you about? I said, I just have a praise report. I said, two years ago during COVID, we saw two salvations the whole year. Last year was 17 people. This year is 96. I'm just so thrilled. He's like, wow. He's like, that's like 5X. He's like, oh, what, do you, what do you attribute it to? And I sent him the emoji that just is the guy doing this. <laughs> I, I don't know. We prayed about it. We get excited about it. And I said, what it means is less about what I'm doing different. It's what you're doing different. That means that at least 96 unbelievers were in this building or at an event this year where we gave an invitation. And there's probably double or triple of that amount, but we can't keep track of everybody you've been leading to Jesus outside of church. I don't know. I don't ask you to give me a number. But man, it fills my heart with joy. At the end of the day, that's what I want to see. We want to see more people saved. And that's what the main thing was. Keep the ma- We get into trouble. John Bevere says this. We minor on things God majors on, and we major on things when God minors on. God minors in sacrifices involving hair. He majors in salvations. And that's what we need to be about. Number three. I see that a healthy Christian community should be one where we refuse to receive or repeat unconfirmed reports about others. Right? And none of us think we do this. I don't know a whole lot of people that are proud of this. Well, Pastor, you know what? My spiritual gift is gossip. I just want you to know, I just want you to know, I want to make this my church home, and I want you to know, I will be watching social media very closely, and I will be putting my own spin on those things, and I will make sure that anybody who's willing to listen gets the latest scoop from me. I just, I want you to know it's my specialty. I'm awesome at it. No one says that. Most of us who know Jesus understand, I have no business exerting any emotional output in my life listening to things about somebody else that don't sound good, but that I don't know firsthand, listening to them, changing my thinking about them, and then repeating them to someone else. I, most of us know that's a waste. That's not good. That's toxic. But we find ourselves subtly in that chain somewhere. You know what it leads to? It leads to damaged relationships. It leads to church hurt. It leads to sin. And you'll see it happen next chapter. There were people who had passed judgment on a man they never met by putting him on the trial of their own heart without an investigation. Shame on them and shame on us if we do it too. Your brother or sister does not deserve that from you. 
if there is a question about what someone said, about someone did, or what someone meant, and it means that much to you that you're going to think differently about them if you don't investigate, then find out the truth. Whatsoever things are true, noble, trustworthy, or of good report, think on these things. Here's the problem. We love to hear that stuff. There are entire cable channels devoted to that. Stop forwarding me your Snopes.com articles. Some people do. Pastor, did you read about Benny Hinn has three wives on four continents? And, and I, where, where did you hear that? Well, this article I'll send it to you, Snopes.com. It's a spin site that's not factual. Well, Pastor, I agree because the church, as a church, we shouldn't pass judgment on anyone. No, no, no. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say don't pass judgment on others. It tells you how to pass judgment. Step one is not judgment. Step one is I investigate what to do about what I heard. You find the truth, and then based on the truth, you adjudicate appropriately. You don't want to stand in front of a judge who doesn't even give you an opportunity to have a trial, who just bases their judgment on what they heard from somebody who has animosity against you. If you're a parent, you understand this. If you have a parent with multiple children, they're going to come to you all the time with accusations. He kicked me in the teeth. I didn't kick him in the teeth. It was an accident. Okay, and you've got to do investigations all the time, and the witnesses are hostile and unreliable. I get it. Not a great example. But I don't just discipline one kid without trying to investigate and find out what really happened. Now, my investigations are oftentimes more problematic than the incident itself. I don't know if I'm always getting reliable information. But I'm trying not to set this precedent that child B can come in the room and make an accusation against child A that I don't investigate and then punish the other kid without even looking into it. That's not being a good dad. We agree on that. Why would you do that to your brother or your sister? Why would you do that? Well, Pastor, I know the decision you must have made is because you don't like kids here and you don't want my this to go in. What? You haven't talked to me in a year. How do you know what I think about anything? If you think that's who I am, why are you in my church? Why would you want a leader like that? Well, I know how you are. You reap where you haven't sown. If that's what you think of me, you don't know me, and you haven't taken the time to do so. Well, pastor, how do we shut this down in our church? Well, to be honest, I don't think it's that big of a problem at Echo right now. I haven't dealt with this in years here. Praise God. But let's not think that it couldn't happen. It's because we have a mature group here. But here's how you shut it down. When you hear, when something starts to get into your ears about someone else that's unconfirmed, you slow the roll of the conversation down. I don't want to hear that. Are you sure that that's true? That doesn't sound like them. Where did you hear that? If that doesn't stop it, just, hey, let's change the subject. Well, pastor, if I do that, that might change the dynamics of the relationship, and I don't Good. Do you need a relationship that's maintained by your willingness to hear their gossipy stories? Is that really a relationship that is life-giving to you? If the relationship cannot survive that, maybe you need to spend a little less time with that. But I'm married to them. Okay, different book, right? Okay, you can. <laughs> you got to set some boundaries for your own ears first and take the advice of Philippians. Think on the things that are true and noble, and don't waste a lot of output on rumors and foolish wives' tales. It just tears people apart. You don't feel better. You feel dirty. Number four, 
a deep and personal. In a healthy Christian church, the people in that church have a deep, personal understanding of what the gospel means. Now, where do you see that in this story? I see it in Paul. Paul knew it was okay for him to participate in this ritual without making a hypocritical statement about the gospel because he spent a lot of his life understanding what the gospel meant, understanding what it meant to be saved and how he was saved to the point where he knew how to make decisions in real time and that it wasn't going to negatively impact his relationship with God because he knew the deep personal facts about the gospel. He knew it for himself. I hope that's a pursuit of your life too, that you don't just, or that you're not just able to repeat a few phrases that you've heard in church, but you have a deep and personal understanding of what the gospel is. Number five, healthy Christian church, we have a commitment to seeking the truth above all else. I love that about Echo. I love that about this church. I love that about what Paul did here. Paul said, you know what? I don't want to have to go through this ritual. I just grew all this hair out. I don't want to burn my hair again. I don't really want. Paul knew, listen, if I do this, it's not going to make me any better than anybody else. I'm just jumping through hoops. But Paul said, you know what? I have an opportunity to do this and squash rumors. And I'm willing to do that because if I can squash this rumor, it could potentially open up a pipe. It could remove an offense that doesn't need to be there. It can clear up a misunderstanding so that my preaching and my life and my witness can now be welcomed and accepted and exemplary to the Jewish community who have come to Christ in Jerusalem. I'm willing to do that because I'm all about the truth. I hope when you encounter disagreement or confusion that you're more concerned about the truth than you are about winning an argument. That you want to know the truth even if it means you're wrong. When's the last time you were wrong? (laughs) Someone said yesterday. Do you know anybody whose catchphrase is, well, yeah, I know. You don't. And if you do, you'd live differently. At the end of the day, can we be a little less defensive about the need to investigate the truth and just say, listen, at the end of the day, even if the truth shows that I'm wrong, I want to know the truth because the truth sets you free from the pressure of having to keep up the guise of being the know-it-all that you're not. I don't even remember what I just said, so don't ask me to repeat it. (laughs) Did you hear that, though? Do you get that? It's one of the ways the truth, let me try it again, because I I need to write this down later, because I think it was good, but I didn't think about this in advance, so I'll forget it in an hour, but um, one of the, you know, you know the Bible verse, the, the truth shall set you free, and that's true of the capital T truth and the lower T truth. Because if you're hanging on to something in your life about yourself that you want people to think about you that's different from how you really are, there's pressure there for you to keep up the guise of appearing to be somebody better than who you really are. And if they see through that, you think they're going to think less of you. There is pressure in living a life that's not true. The truth and only the truth will set you free. And you say, no, the truth will crush me. No, the truth will set you free of the pressure of having to keep up appearances. It will set you free from that. 
because you can simply say, this is who I am and this is who I'm not and I'm a new creation in Jesus. I'm an ongoing project and he is working on me and I don't have to make you think of me being a way other than what I really am. I can just be me in Christ. The truth will set you free from the pressure of having to come off as a know-it-all that you're really not anyway. It's okay to admit, I don't know. I might not be right. Let's look into that. Or as my son says, can you look up it on Google? I wish he would have never found Google. I've now had to make a limit on how many times I'll look up on Google. You know, Dad, when is the, when is the last? He's in NASCAR right now, my five-year-old. Yeah, I know, right? A lot of left-hand turns. Daddy, when was Chase Elliott's first win? I don't know, buddy. Can you look up it? Yes. How many crashes was he in in 2012? I don't know. Can you look up it? You have three more this hour. Put a limit on it. I know, right? Well, yeah. The truth did not set me free in that case. The truth made me an addict to the Google machine. But I want you to experience true freedom in Jesus. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. Worship team, please come. Maybe today's the day that you say yes to Jesus. You say yes to salvation. You say yes to forgiveness. You say yes to true freedom. That's at the center of a healthy Christian church is salvation through Jesus by grace through your faith in Jesus. Well, pastor, I want that. What do I have to do? Repent and believe. That's it. Repent, believe. Repent means to turn away from the life you've been living because you've changed your mind about that and you're turning towards the life Jesus offers. That's what repent means, to turn away from and turn to. You have to be willing to do that. And you recognize that that proves that you believe he's the Lord. He's the master. He's the leader. Not you, not me. And you need to believe. Well, what do I need to believe? Three things. You need to believe you need to be saved, that Jesus can save you, and that he will save you. You need to believe that you are, in fact, what the Bible says all of us are. We are sinners. We fall short of Jesus' standard. Another way of saying that, we recognize we are incapable of living the better life that we know we should be living, but we're not. And we recognize, I need to be saved from the spiral I'm sinking down into. But then you need to also believe that Jesus can save you, that he has the ability to save you. You must believe that he took your penalty on himself and he substituted himself into your place by going to the cross and dying. He did not deserve to die as a penalty for my sin, but he did it. He took what I deserved so that I can receive only what he deserves. His righteousness is imparted to me. My sins were put on him. And when he was risen from the dead, he proved that God not only defeated sin through Jesus, but Jesus defeated death and that we have hope to live an eternal life with Jesus. Newly resurrected bodies. You have to believe he can save you and that he will save you. That you won't be the exception. That you're not too far gone or too much messed up or have too much of a past. You have to believe that if you ask him to save you, he will. So if you are ready to repent and you believe in those things, all that's left for you to do is just tell Jesus that. Tell him that, and he'll save you. Use your words and tell him. Jesus, please save me. Tell him that. 
Jesus, forgive me. Tell him that. Jesus, lead me. Say that to him. Holy Spirit, come live inside me and transform me. I promise you, if you're saying those things to Jesus right now, he is hearing you. He's saving you right now. You are saved. You're as saved as you ever need to be. You don't have to do another thing to be saved. In fact, now you can turn towards your your spiritual journey of cooperating with the Holy Spirit and surrendering to him as every day he makes you a little bit more like Jesus. It's a process that's a daily, weekly, monthly, rest of your life thing. But now you've, you've entered into his family. You're gloriously saved. You don't have to do another thing. You're saved. But I do have a small favor to ask. I'm going to count to three. And if you prayed that prayer with me today, would you be brave enough and courageous enough when I get to three to just raise your hand, make eye contact with me, and you can put your hand right back down. I'm, I won't ask anything more of you this morning. I just want to look at you and celebrate with you because this is the very, this is the thing that's most important. You coming into relationship with God through Jesus. So who prayed that prayer with me today? One, two, three. Anybody brave enough to raise their hand and say, I prayed that with you today, Pastor? Anybody at all? Praise his name. Heavenly Father, help us to create the type of church community that's healthy, that's welcoming that is warm, that is focused on salvation, that values everybody equally. Lord, that is not ripe with gossip, but that have hearts for the truth. And we know we'll bring continued honor and glory to your name. In your mighty name I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.